How's it going? I'm Mallory Smart. Welcome back to Textual Healing. Today I have a truly life-altering episode for you with Ben Tanzer. But before diving into this episode, I'd like to ask you to support Textual Healing by following us on Twitter at PodHealing, where you can also find the link to our Patreon. You can also show your love by leaving ratings and reviews on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. But back to the show. On this episode, Ben and I discuss his new book, The Missing, and then go on a deep dive into how he got into the literary community, what it was like before social media, his insane early reading skills, gifted programs, injuries, and so much more. So, everybody, here's Ben. Hey, this is Ben Tanzer. I am an author who lives in Chicago and should be noted, I don't know if I'm a Chicago author because I wasn't born here, but I really didn't write a sentence until I moved here. So when people ask if I'm a Chicago writer, I'm quite honored that that's a possibility. Um, I spent 20 odd years, probably more, working in nonprofits, first in New York City and then here in Chicago. Uh, Now I'm a teacher and a coach. Um, I'm a podcaster. And I do a lot of workshops and trainings around leadership and storytelling. Um, And I write, or I try to write. Mallory, you can tell me if I'm actually getting away with that. But uh, I have a new book coming out, so that's kind of exciting. I've actually been on a bit of a hiatus, which wasn't planned. So um, here we are. Writing, coaching, running around, podcasting. That covers most of it. Am I leaving anything out? No, I think I think you've got it. Oh, and like I hear you're really amazing at doing readings as well. So, you know, throw that in <laughs> as well. Um, I've been told you have good reader voice. I have no idea what that means, but <laughs> I know, right? That's really funny. You know what's great about that? I don't know if that's true, but I always wanted to do reading. I know some people are like, oh, that's the worst part of this or but I thought it'd be cool if anyone ever invited me to do that. Now it's been a long time and I'm sure I did fine at the start, but there was a night where I was doing a reading over in Bucktown and I don't know what prompted it, but I realized like you didn't have to read every word and it was okay to change pace and you could even crack a joke if the timing worked and that reading went really well. I mean, this was 20 years ago, but that reading went really well and something about it changed just my whole thinking about it. Like you don't have to be rigid. You don't have to be so tight. It's okay to mess up. Um, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to enunciate. I don't know how I thought about it before that, but I know I was always nervous and then it sort of passed and it's become really fun. So if people respond to it, of course, I'm thrilled in my head. I'm doing great and I really enjoy it. Yeah, I definitely caught like a little flack until I actually explained it to everybody that at my reading, I didn't read from my book. I wrote um, my favorite passion passage from my book on my phone so I could actually break it into points so like we're like take a breath extend this word properly do it phonetically because there were like certain words that are like a little like you know what the fear of the number 13 is a pretty long (laughs) word interesting so can I ask you so you'll you'll put it on your phone and you'll think through where you want and how you want to pace things and enunciate them so you're doing that consciously yeah so, like, even, like, odd points where people are like, why do you, like, pause here? And it's like, I knew that that was going to be a point where I was going to emphasize or, like, I know, like, how I breathe. And, like, I know that, like, if I don't do that, I'll, like, kind of s- speed through it, you know. 
Yeah, that's interesting. So it's funny hearing you say that. That's something I started doing after the night of that reading I just referenced. So I'll think pause here or pick up the pace here. And and it's funny, uh, I read the other night, you know, last week I read from the new book for the first time. And um, there was a there was a scene where I thought, speed that up significantly, like make you and everybody feel anxious about it. Like the character, I wanted the character to sound sort of anxious and sped up. So I did that purposely. You don't see that on the page, like with you. And then afterwards, someone pulled me aside and said, oh my God, that rat-tat-tat scene, that really popped. And I thought, oh good, because it didn't have to. It just seemed like that was a a long paragraph that I should go really fast and make it feel urgent. And then someone noted that. And I thought, okay, you didn't get that part wrong. But yeah, I wrote all over the book. So I haven't done what you've done yet. I got to try that sometime where I put it on my phone or just print it out and give myself notes. I did it right in the margins. Yeah, I... I wish I could do like margin writing. I used to do that a lot when I was younger, but these days I just have terrible handwriting. Call it a side effect of being a millennial, like where it almost hurts my wrist to write shit out. (laughs) But yeah, I, I think the phone thing is pretty cool, but God, I actually love the idea that like you knew like to like race through sign to create the urgency because it does. It like makes your like BPM race. It like gets everybody else like going like yeah, I feel it. Did you have to rehearse that? So the answer is I probably should have. The rehearsal thing I'm very poor at. I believe me being decisive about when and how to do things I'm good at, but my experience, because I also do a lot of workshops and trainings, that as long as I sit down at some point and read what's already prepared and take notes, that's enough. Um, I don't know what it's like to act, for example. Um, I have done some storytelling on stage, and that I rehearsed for more. So no, I just read it once, and I took some notes, and I thought, try that part, try that part. You know, it's funny... (laughs) With the new book, I said this the other night, like, I think live, there's a great benefit to having some humor available, or maybe a lot of humor, even if you're not writing something humorous. And the new book does not have a lot of humor, and so that might be problematic. That didn't seem to be an issue the other night, but it is funny. There isn't any humor to lean on. Um, I hope I'm kind of funny, at least introing and outroing, but uh, I did walk up and say, okay... I apologize in advance. There may be no humor for the next five or ten minutes. you got to, like, lighten the mood a little bit because it catches people's attention and then they're like, okay, I'm prepared. This book is one of those, like, seems bleak immediately. That's the vibe. And I don't know. I just love the cover, first off. Who did that? Oh, gosh, yeah, the cover. So let's give proper shout-out. The cover, and I think I neglected to mention the name of the book, but the name of the book is The Missing. (laughs) Um, And the cover is by Alban Fisher, who is... He was based in the Midwest. I had crossed paths with him over the years when the publisher mentioned he wanted an Alban Fisher cover. And we were talking a bit about fanboying before. I was like, oh, my gosh, can you actually get him? And the publisher's like, yeah, that's what we do. But I got very excited. So big shout-out to Alpen Fisher, who's done a lot of covers, a lot of people love, and uh, he's a really gifted. What's funny is he sent three covers. They were all terrific, but the one we went with and the one you're commenting on, I just thought, oh, my God, like, I don't know how he came up with that. It doesn't matter. The other covers are fine, but it was such the clear winner. So the response to it has been really interesting. And, of course, now, with me being both half self-deprecating and half self-conscious, I'm like, okay, the words better live up to that cover because people see that cover and they really lose it. I mean, 
it is one of those like misconceptions where everyone's like, oh, you can't judge a book by its cover, but it is exactly what everybody does. So I think, I think the book lives up to it. As I stare at it, I keep remembering that I get ARCs and a lot of times people change the cover after I get a copy. So yeah, it's the one with the face torn off, right? Yes. You know, it's funny you say that. It just makes me feel old. But earlier in my writing life and when I've helped out publishers, what you're describing seems so common that the covers could constantly change after the ARCs came out. And it feels like there's less of that. Uh, On the other hand, as I mentioned before, during the intro part, I have been on a slightly longer than planned hiatus between books. So I also don't know how much that's changed but yeah it's funny the covers can change no this one we locked in on and actually it was interesting the publisher was like we're getting this cover done correctly and i'm not sending the book out until we do and i hadn't really had that experience before so there were a couple of days where i was like really tense thinking i think this needs to go out i mean i was saying this in my head i was not badgering the publisher or alban for that matter I thought, oh, my gosh, now we need this done because he really wants this cover nailed down. And uh, it was very stressful. And then it was a Friday night. The cover popped in and we're like, are we ready to go? And the publisher said, if you're ready to go, we're ready to go. And I said, well, I'm ready. I'm waiting on this. So it's been a very interesting thing. He really took it seriously, even just get, get, get the arcs out the door. So I know with my last book, I had a bit of like a few cover debacles. I mean, I love the finished product and everything of my cover, but it was like such a big back and forth. And I love the person who did my cover. Did you have a lot of say in it or did you leave it up to Alvin and your press? So that's a great question. I mean, I probably agree with everybody listening. Um, I think I had say in that, hey, please sign off. And I had say in that very early on or whatever early on qualifies as the publisher said, send me covers you like from other books so we can use those as a resource. So I was able to sort of influence the direction and I was able to sign off. But there was no back and forth like, what do you think about this or what do you think about this? Should I change this color? But I'll also admit Um, If that's the right phrase, the cover showed up and the publisher and I, and I should give a shout out to Leland Chuck, the publisher at 713, who's also the editor on this book. When we saw the cover, we thought, why would we mess with that? (laughs) So um, I don't know what it would be like. And I have to say, I've been very blessed and we're both in a position of having multiple books published. So I know I don't sound as obnoxious as I might in another context. I've been really blessed with covers. You know, I mean, I've always worked with people who are very cool and engaging, but I've I don't believe I've ever been sent a cover where I thought, oh, no, it's really been the opposite. Um, That's luck, right? That's got nothing to do with me. Um, I don't know what that position would be like if I was like, oh, you've got to change this. So I've been really lucky. I've always said that. I'm really blessed. And some of the covers have been outrageously good. I don't, you know, I have a book came out about, I used to be so much better with math and numbers and time. Ten years ago, a book called Orphans. And that cover is absolutely stunning. And I can say that with no shame because I had nothing to do with it. They sent it to me and I thought, oh, my God, we can have that. So, you know, I've been very lucky on covers and whatever that dynamic is, I'm really appreciative. I like actually Orphans because that has a very similar vibe where, okay, well, it looks a little bit more almost like melting, but it does seem like it kind of is almost like a torn out silhouette of the city where there's also like in the missing or just like a ripped off quality. 
of the face just like torn maybe that's out. the vibe maybe the vibe is you know my characters feel emptied out and live in a hollowed out city you know the missing the new one doesn't necessarily and i did this consciously have to take place anywhere in particular with orphans i really did want to write a sort of chicago book not that i'm pretending to have written anything definitive but i did think this book is going to take place in chicago and actually i was running along the lakefront when the uh some of the themes came together in my head. I mean, that's pretty common for my writing, but I thought this is going to be a Chicago book. I don't know if I have, and my second book also, I consciously put in Chicago, but that one, I thought this is going to be something sci-fi or close to it. And it's going to be Chicago. And then they came back with that cover and I thought, Oh man, it was a really, that's an exceptional cover. And again, it's easy to brag about it because I had nothing to do with it. You know, that's why I actually find most fascinating with a lot of authors that one, like sometimes they're just like, this is the vibe I want. Do you like, not all cover artists do this where they actually read the book like before coming up with their plan. So like, do you go in with an intention of this is the story I would really like you to like focus on this main personality of it? I haven't done that. So this is a really interesting exchange in in that nobody has really invited me to do that. And I am sure I'm controlling and an endless amount of ways and I have two children and they could probably give you an endless list, but I never think of the cover that way now that you're saying it. And so, no, people haven't really asked me very often. Um, and I don't know if people read the book. That's really funny. Um, I'm going to be thinking about that the rest of the night though. Yeah. I mean, I would say, okay, of course, Dmitry Samarov did my book and, you know, obviously he read it. And then with my most recent book, the publisher, made sure that the cover artists read it and like they were focusing on points where I was like where'd you get that vibe like what why are you focusing on this like I I I wasn't going for that so yeah I, I really like the idea that you actually are more willing to hand it off to people that probably are like way more qualified to find what the focal point and the imagery that defines your novel you know it's First off, I love the way you just said that. Um, Maybe that's because you're paying me a a sort of compliment. But it also, hearing you say it, reminds me of what it's like where I've spent, you know, really most of my adult life working in offices, doing different work, but sort of trying to, like, let go of things that other people are better at, you know, than you are. So I'm really good, like, ideating or coming up with ideas. I'm also very conscious that I'm not great at executing something visually or graphically. And so I think one benefit I have is having 25 years of saying, okay, you're going to go do this better, right? (laughs) Um, And when they say yes, then I just let go of it because there's no way I can do it. Um, I have been fortunate, though, because people come back with things and I think, oh, whether I was thinking about it or not, you found something. I also want to make sure we give props to your book, which you've referenced, but you're being very discreet. Um, I keep my visions to myself, which I'm oh, looking we'll at because it's on my books that, that I, later. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's in my list, my pile of books right here by my computer that have read recently, having that person on my podcast as a guest, keeping the book front and center, but that's a beautiful cover. I really liked it. I was blown that I liked it. I mean, I was in Egypt when like, <laughs> I was just getting file after file, and I was just like, I have so limited, like, data here. So I was just like, just pick one. I trust you guys. 
but I have the same thing that you have where my desk is just full of like stacks of books that I'm just like, and now you. So you're on top of my, uh, I want to say like five, six books stack right now. You know, if you're going to read books, do podcasts, review books, be a book person, then yeah, you're going to be surrounded by books. Um, it's interesting though, this whole exchange to me, cause I realize where I'm controlling and not right. So I wouldn't necessarily worry about a cover, but then I very much worry that everyone's sort of synced up to get books out for potential trade reviews. Right. Um, that I worry about a lot. Like, do we have the proper time frame? Is everything lined up? Even the stuff that I have no control over. So when those things go awry, it's much more upsetting than worrying about a cover per se, which I actually almost never worry about. So now, of course, now that you've brought it up and be thinking about this nonstop, because I love that, um, I tend to get very caught up in time frames and deadlines and are people doing what they're supposed to? Do you need me to do anything to help with that? Right. That's what I get caught up in. I mean, you know, you're a strategist. You, you do publicist stuff. I mean, that, that's just the way you think. That, yes, that is my brain for sure. Um, and it's funny because I would love to be sort of slightly more perfectionist or slightly more organized. I mean, I do those things well on other people's behalf. I'd love to do it better on my behalf. But yeah, that is true. Hearing you say it, reflect it back to me. Of course, I'm worried most about the things that I worry about. <laughs> it's like a daily process. Your brain is wired to do that. But how about you tell us a little bit about what the missing is about? As I said, two abouts right away. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so what you know, what one knows right off the bat, page one, is that there is a couple, a married couple, and their daughter has run away with a slightly older guy. And so even though she's somewhat underage, she's not quite underage, he's not that old. It's all consensual. I mean, we could definitely get into the power dynamics of that kind of thing, which both parents are worried about. Um, but what was important to me with the book is that, you you know, creating a situation where outside of the parents, maybe nobody cares enough. So they have to care. It's not criminal. It's not a lot of things. Um, but what it is also is a child deciding to run away and has made it very clear or it feels very clear very quickly they don't want to be found. They want to be missing. They don't intend to be in touch. They're not going to turn their phone on or send a note and say, hey, things are cool or I'm in Florida now. And so what I wanted to really capture was right off the bat, you know, this kid's missing and this kid's going to be a ghost, right? So an omnipresent presence who's never actually physically present. And my intention was to focus less on what it looks like for someone to run away and more in this case, for this couple to have to go through whatever they have to go through to try to make sense and find some peace or find something, but also decide how they're going to face and support one another, and that maybe they're in a relationship that's not as stable as it could be anyway, and now this sort of foundational piece has been pulled away from them. And so what's left and how are they supposed to think about things? And um, each chapter of the POV shifts between the husband and the wife as they process what's going on. And sometimes they're processing the same thing. So the opening two chapters are them processing a very similar experience, meeting with the police. 
Um, and then sometimes they're doing their own thing like couples do, and then they're processing that and they're interacting with people at work or with friends, um, their family. Uh, and that, that's the book. I mean, the book is really, what does it look like when this person, this way of life is torn out from underneath you and how do people deal with that? And then particularly how does this couple deal with that? And I was really interested in trying to teach through what that might look like and feel like. I was going to say, I really do like the switching uh, point of views and how you don't actually do the standard like chapter titles instead, where you're just constantly then just doing a Gabriel, Hannah, Gabriel, Hannah. I felt like that was a really good dynamic. But I immediately am now going to jump into, you know, I think you mentioned previously you are a parent. Do you think that that influenced this book in any way? I mean, because you're very focused on, obviously, their perspective as opposed to, like, how you just said, instead of, like, the running away vibe. So, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, it's interesting, and you're an author, so you know this. The idea doesn't necessarily, the idea for something doesn't necessarily come from, like, a very conscious, like, I want to write about this. I had this idea that I was interested in writing about a couple over time. That seemed interesting to me. I hadn't framed it at all. I had written a book, like a y, an attempt to write a YA book, which I really liked but didn't seem to get any traction, so I stopped sort of sending it around, and um, I sort of shelved it, which I had never done before. Not like that exactly. And so when the idea for the book came, which was a conversation with my agent, I had a bunch of things I thought would be interesting for the couple to tangle with, And she was like, yo, she doesn't say the word yo, but she said, yo, you know, that running away, that's a hook in and of itself. Like, don't you don't have to focus on a whole series of things. Make sense of that. Uh, And so to answer your question, yes, as a parent, um, I didn't think of my kids. I thought of a relationship. Right. So in a way I took I was thinking about the prism of just being in a marriage. I had been married for. I should know this answer off the top of my head. It's over 25 years. I know that. Um, And that's what I was interested in. Pardon? Don't worry, we all forget. I know, though I think you've been married more recently than I have. So I should also say Mazel, because that's why you're in Egypt, right? Yeah, um, but also I was in a relationship with my now husband for, well, I think it's 12, going on 13 years. Oh, so you're you're way in it. Yeah, that's just a piece of paper. I mean, it's not just a piece of paper. but It was an excuse to go to Egypt. Well, that's a great excuse. So to your question, where what it comes from is, I think, a generalized fear that, at least myself, I don't want to speak for all parents, we all possess. I do think it's most of us. Even if people are cooler than I am, I mean, calmer, a calmer parent, less fears, there's always certain kind of fears you have. And so... Did I have a fear one of my kids would run away? Not necessarily. Um, but do I have a fear that something could happen or something's out of your control? You, know, you have to fight that every day. And so from that perspective, to answer your question, yes, it's very much from being a parent. It's also from then being a human with all sorts of fears that then you can easily pull on them. But not just fears, right? Um, our own sort of quirks, our own foibles. I don't think I've ever used the word foible before. But, you know, the ways we cope and don't cope, which is a running theme in my books, as is how we communicate and how we poorly communicate. And so, you know, with the POV of sort of switching between the two protagonists, one of the things I really wanted to get into was how poorly 
people can communicate even when they're close, right? So then if things are problematic, that communication starts to falter. So I was interested in all those things, and then I was drawing on the fear of, wow, what if your kid just disappeared? Like, what would that look like? How scary would that be? Um, it feels so terrible to me. Um, and so that was very easy to draw on. And again, I didn't think the whole book would be about that, but apparently I have a well of fears that I was able to draw on for 200 plus pages. So there you go with that. See, that's amazing. Do you think your kids will read this book and be like, ah, dad, I'm not running away. That's a great question. Uh, my general sense is, and I think they're both wonderful if they happen to listen to this, is that there's a low-level disdain that I write anything at all. Like, why do you have to do that? Um, <laughs> so will they read it? I don't know. It seems so unlikely. Um, but that would be fascinating, right? Because this one is so, so, so parent-centric. Um, it hits close yeah. to home, yeah. I think so. And again, what's funny is, you know, they're both very private Um which I say that not because I think they'll be listening, but because I try to honor it, right? You know, um, even if I take a photo of them that I want to post, I ask them if I can do that. Not that that makes me a hero, right? But, you know, they're very private. Um, and I try to honor that. It's really hard to do so. They're both very entertaining to me. I love them. I love to talk about them. But what's funny is when you write a book like this, where it's primarily focused on the parents, if they read it, they're also not going to necessarily have to say, oh, you're talking about me, because there is, you know, certainly a lens where they're looking back on their kid's life through the perspective of how they think they understand their kid. But the kid is not the central character and barely a minor character in a way. That's actually very helpful. So I'm kind of relieved if they chose to read it. They're not also going to be like, you said that about me? <laughs> uh, no, no, I didn't. But, right, will they say I might have run away? Or this is the other fear, or which I'm going to say Dad, ineligibly. you're so neurotic. Well, that for sure. Oh, yeah, no, they, they know that. But, yes, that would be really fascinating. Um, but also this idea, which, again, they're older, and this comes up more than it used to, not with them, but I also then have friends with older kids, where, like, the kids just stop talking to their parents. So I never thought that was very common, uh, but I hear more and more stories. So that's also a version, right, of being missing. You decide just not to talk to your parents at all. Like, I don't quite understand it. And I really want to stress that's not a comment on, you know, relationships where uh, children don't want to talk to their parents because the relationships are so problematic. I, I want to validate that. That's not an opinion like everybody should work everything out. Because my mom once said to me, which is always funny, not everybody should talk to their parents. It's not healthy. So I very much appreciate that. I'm, I'm interested in the middle ground where it's like the feelings are valid, but couldn't they be worked out? That's what I'm interested in also, I guess. I haven't thought about that before I talked to you, but there's a weird middle ground where maybe if people communicated slightly better, they could work something out, right? I mean, I think that opinion right there in itself really just amplifies the message in the book. I mean, I think a toxic parent or someone who wasn't thinking about that often wouldn't have these thoughts. I hope that's true, right? So I would say I don't believe I'm a toxic parent. That doesn't make me a good parent either, right? <laughs> I'd like to imagine you like Amy Poehler and Mean Girls and be like, I'm not your typical mom. I'm a cool mom. That's so awesome. Yeah, and again, I love Amy Poehler. You know, it's funny. It's a, almost a separate yet totally intertwined, right? But the idea of wanting to be a cool parent is such a trap. Uh, 
And it's a terrible thing. I've actually really tried not to be that, or at least not to articulate it or think about it, because, man, that is only not going to serve you. Look how poor it serves the Amy Poehler character. But it is really funny. That's also balanced by me, which I am both unabashed about and completely embarrassed about. So it's a paradox. The idea of being cool will never not be appealing to me, no matter how old I get, apparently. So I am conscious of that. I hate that it's so important to me still, even though I'm way less focused on it than I used to be. I think that, you know, a a certain degree of uh, self-obsession comes with the writing territory. I mean, you're always going to be a little bit more like wanting to know how you come off to other people and I think it's going to like obviously be more well I'm going to use the word amplified more amplified around the people that are actually around you the most absolutely and you know the less um, negative version of what I just said and what you were saying because I totally agree with you is that most writers most of us to some extent have a high level of self-awareness right it doesn't mean we do a good job of taking care of ourselves or we're good partners or we communicate really well, but we're self-aware enough to know how it's going down. And uh, I am certainly self-aware enough to know, don't say it like that, but then maybe I say it anyway, but then that's great for a character, right? So I do think writers have a level of self-awareness and a level of observation. So we're always looking like I'm fairly extroverted and, um, you know, I'm not, sitting in the corner, but I also really love just being in a room observing people. Like I'm extroverted, don't necessarily need to be the center of attention, though never shy away from it. Another paradox, I guess. But you know, most of us do like to sort of sit around and watch things. And so we have a lot of ideas and a lot of ways to talk about them. And, you know, on that level, that's what we're putting in the books, you know, even when it's wrong. (laughs) I like how you say that obviously there is a lot of self-awareness and how we obviously observe other people so well. Have you ever written anyone that you just totally hate? Because I feel like that's something else we notice as well. Like we're just like, I despise all of these qualities. And they're like the that's antithesis a, of who you are. That's an awesome question. Uh, so I would offer a both and one thing it took me actually several books to realize is that most of the characters I write about are people doing versions of things I wouldn't do, pursuing impulses I wouldn't pursue, um, saying things out loud I would never say. Um, And so I can tell unconsciously I'm like trying to disentangle or untangle what it feels like to not be the version of yourself you are but could be. And so there are characters in all the books doing things that I find appalling. Uh, But I am absolutely an author who loves all my characters. So whether that's a kind of self-love or a narcissism or in a way, maybe my general feelings about everybody deserves some level of unconditional love and I'm happy to offer it. uh, Yeah, I tend to like my characters probably a little too much. Um, And uh, I think I have the same problem. I like myself a little too much, which sounds horrible to say out loud, but I know it's true. So better to be transparent with you. I mean, I think it's actually amazing to say out loud because so much of us, so many of us are so self-deprecating in a fake way because we want to seem so much more humble. And I like the idea of someone actually being like, I like myself. I'm happy with my personality. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because... I consciously try to be humble in situations where it's, I think it's required. Maybe I'm leading a big meeting 
Um, but I do know that most of the time, and I know this can drive people crazy, they'll thank you for complimenting it. I am, I'm pretty happy with who I am at a base level. It's not the same as being happy with how things turn out, right? Or ways I fail myself or my children or bosses. But the idea of day to day, I don't have a lot of self hate. That is accurate. Um, so that if that's not humble, like that, I can live with. I want to be humble about everything else. But yeah, it's funny, and I, I think I can thank my mom also a lot, of, and my dad. Uh, but you know, thank her lots of years of therapy. You know, like uh, I've really worked at it. But I don't think I ever very much felt that way. You know, I have other things, but not that. That's not a thing. It's more conscious to me now that I'm older. So. Now that you're older and you reflect back on your writing throughout the years, I, I, I love how artsy you've been. Just like I see you as like a pillar of the Chicago literary community. When you look back on it, how would you say that you've grown? Wow. Well, first off, thank you. Uh, how have I grown? Um, I'm actually pausing, so I say that well. I mean, one way I've grown, which is not the answer you're looking for is just trying to be more sophisticated. That's not even exactly the word, more professional, something, meaning what I put out in the world, I want it to be the best version it can be. And I don't know that I cared as much about that. So when I was younger, you're rushing it. I didn't feel like, yeah, I didn't feel like I had the wherewithal to be better, but I also was very attracted to stuff being kind of scuzzy and punk um, and I'm not scuzzy and punk, so I think it's uh, just something that I love the feel of it. So there's definitely an effort to be better, be more effective, be more efficient. Um, but probably one of the ways I've grown, which may or may not answer that question, oh, it's just a sort of more relentless focus on cutting the fat out of things, that seeing that the, the way to live, the way I want to try to live artistically requires you know, dropping certain things or doing them differently, uh, making the time to do it properly, right? So this is minor, and this shouldn't get more attention than it deserves. But, you know, cutting back on, like, drinking and drugs, I mean, that's just a good practice. And it was never very problematic for me. Um, However, however, if you get home and you've been out for hours and hours and it's like 10 or 11 o'clock, that could be a time to write or to edit a podcast. And you're not going to want to do that if you've been in a bar for hours and hours. And I really like being in bars for hours and hours. I had to rethink a lot of that. You know, a lot of my early podcasts for my podcast were people drinking and running around. And, you know, at one point I thought these are funny and they're entertaining. And a lot of the writers were all of them really we're big time, you know, or big time to me because I love writers. But I also thought, let's do this better. <laughs> you know, like what happened, I think the part, the biggest part is I wanted to do things better than I used to do them, right? And as soon as that gets in your head, it's very hard to get it out of your head. And I didn't want to get it out of my head. And, you know, I've had this sort of blessing the last couple of years to teach at Columbia College and meet all these awesome young artists who I loved. And if any of them are listening, and you were in any of my classes, thank you, because they really inspired me. But one thing I realized meeting, like, much younger artists is that it's really good to repeat that any artist they admire, even ones who look sloppy and casual and seem like they're messing around, they're very serious, right? 
and they're very serious when the time comes to be serious. So occasionally I'd have someone in class who's like, yeah, I'm just going to mess around. I don't want to do any planning. I don't want to, I just want to follow the flow. And I thought that might work for you, but that doesn't really work. Right. I mean, even the Ramones were probably going to rehearsal and playing over and over and over again so they could sound casual. Right. And so I think that's a big part of it. Be more conscious that you have to go about your business in a business fashion, which I always did at work. Um, and I didn't necessarily do as an artist. So that's a big difference. You know, I actually like that you brought up the Ramones because I was also going to go into the punk rock vibe that you were saying that like one, I like when people compare like the literary world to music genres because it is so spot on. I think a lot of people do forget how much planning actually goes into appearing like you are careless and you put no thought into it. I mean, if you pay attention to, say, like, The Runaways, Ramones, so many, I'm throwing The Runaways in punk, they're not quite, maybe, but there's so much about creating an image that looks punk as opposed to actually being that weird, spazzy, disheveled self that you see in the audience. You know, even people, and I take hair very seriously, even people with incredibly disheveled hair spend a lot of time getting the proper dishevelment. What I say, you're not doing this, but sometimes people push back on that, like, oh my God, why does everything have to be so nuanced and practiced? I always say, why shouldn't it be? You know, your goal, (laughs) one's goal is to be as successful as possible. And I don't mean everything's about success. I just mean we want some kind of audience. We want some kind of recognition, even if it's a sad kind of validation. Uh, That takes a lot of work. I mean, people don't get discovered at drugstore counters. You know, yes, some stuff is branding and people get offended by it. I don't. Um, If you brand in a subtle way where people don't even realize you are branding, I think that's the most impressive it takes work. You know, it's interesting. This is probably not the greatest example and or maybe it's really not as analogous as it feels in my head. But, you know, I love sorry, this is now repetitive. I love Courtney Love. And uh, we land on different sides of the spectrum there. We land on different that? ends of the spectrum there. But you go off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it brief, except to say she seems so random and scattered and angry, all of which may be true. Uh you know, but very early in her career, and again, this may seem craven also, but she made a list of the people she felt like she needed to meet to further what she hoped would be her career. And some people love to put that. She's like, go find Michael Stipe. Well, she became very good friends with Michael Stipe. Um, and the, my comment is less on how we feel about Courtney Love, but it was a reminder to me that it doesn't matter how random people look. The successful ones do figure out who they need to meet, and then they go out and find them, and they figure out a way to get their help, get their support, to feed off of them, and that's how it works. I mean, that's one part of how it works, and I would love people to be a little less, a little more unabashed about that and just say, I didn't need to go meet so-and-so because so-and-so has some insight that I don't possess or they have connections I don't possess. I mean, my goal has always been to meet people, to find people, to make friendships, but also, you know, to try to be, to try to put good energy out in the world simultaneously, right? That 
I'll be happy to take care of you also. And you don't have to return the favor. I'm happy to interview you. I'm happy to hype your book. I'm, whatever it is, I'm down. Um, but I'm also conscious that you were someone I wanted to meet. Uh, that may turn into something. That would be awesome. If it doesn't, also awesome. So that's the Courtney Love point. I just thought it was really interesting when that when I heard that story. Because I thought, of course. Of course. I remember reading that Beyonce was very heavily the same way. Is uh, She would go to every concert she could of uh, artists she admired. She'd be backstage and just watching every movement they made, how they handled the microphone, how they did uh, crowd handling and everything. And that's what made her the musician she is. It's through observation. It's through discussing, networking, all of it. And also it is, that's right? like there is the mutual benefit then too because like then she doesn't forget who helps her on that like journey. So then she gives them shouts out and everything. Yeah. And I, I would love that to be framed as something, if not positive, just consciously necessary. Now what it doesn't overlook, right. Is that you need to have some level of talent, but again, going back to our earlier point, you need to be jamming all the time, right? I mean, and again, I'm also conscious that jamming all the time isn't possible for everybody, so I don't want to overstate that. But just to say you're also honing your craft, right? Beyonce's out doing all those things, and she's in the rehearsal studio, right? And she's hustling, and she's making sure she can pay the bills. So all of that goes hand in hand. You know, I knew I'd be talking to you tonight. I tell versions of this story all the time. I was very conscious what the rest of the day needed to look like, right? I have a PowerPoint deck that I had to edit for a client because we are leading a big thing next week. My job was to get that done today. I was conscious that had to be done today, right? I, uh, I needed to write. I didn't want to leave that for the evening. And now, you know, especially on an evening like this, my evening is going to be with you. And then I'm going to circle back to my family. So, you know, all of those things are important, too. They don't seem like sexy or cool, but... If you want to get it all done, then you need to get it all done. And that involves some level of focus. Yeah, I think I really love how you said that it doesn't need to be sexy and cool because so many people, I, I, I guess, you know, I always believe that you should create more than, can, than you can consume. Obviously, in these days, it's almost impossible with the Internet. But we keep forgetting that a lot of the things that we are consuming, a lot of the content that we're receiving it, it, it's not really that sexy and cool if you were to discuss it with the people who made it. And also, they don't, they don't, we don't, right? I mean, you're putting out podcasts, you're, you're writing wonderful books. You know, we don't think about it that way. It's a, I don't know what the right word is. It's an action we're involved in. You know, you, I'm guessing, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, you have an impulse to write. I have an impulse to write. I stop questioning why I have that impulse or why I want to do it every day or how I'm thinking about the next thing, even as I'm in the new thing. You know, you mentioned Dimitri earlier, who I'm a huge, huge fan of. I know he's a, a co-podcaster of yours and I'm not blowing smoke. Like to me, he's one of the true artist people I get to interact with, but you know, he's doing the work all the time. And he's doing what he needs to do to, and again, I may be projecting. I oh, try no. to romanticize You're him. You're fairly correct. Like anytime, like pick a day, he's out there sketching people or is at a concert or hanging out with John McNaughton, seeing old movies and stuff. Like he's out there, he's making the connects and getting his art and like wormhole, stuff like that. And that, that's required, right? And so um, 
But again, you can't make that sound cooler than it is. I mean, it is cool, but it's work. I always think of writing as work. Now, because I'm freelance and contractual and I have certain clients and certain gigs, I have a little more flexibility day to day. I don't have to write at five o'clock in the morning. I also have older children. I don't have to write at midnight. Um, So now I really try to think of writing as work, like what slot during my work day will be a writing slot, right? What slot will I be editing PowerPoint decks? What slot will I be leading a workshop? When am I going to teach? And so that's actually made it really interesting. Now, if I don't want to miss a day, which I don't, uh, it's not as frantic either, which is very nice for me. You know, the fr- being frantic, I'm frantic in my head, but not necessarily frantic moving throughout the day, which I used to always be. I like the idea where you were mentioning the process about having to like balance everything and then also your style of writing being seen more as a job for you these days and I definitely believe in the idea of the 10,000 hour rule where like you just keep getting better with each thing you do and you're learning constantly do you feel that that's made writing easier for you just constantly working on it like how much do you write every day like creatively so I, I rarely write more than 30 minutes a day early on Stephen King you know, would judge you I know he would. So this, I think this is interesting. Um, your your audience can decide if it's actually interesting. I did not write a single word before I turned 30. I did barely had started writing when my wife and I started having children. I was always nine to five. I was lucky enough to get some big jobs later on. So I don't know what it looks like to say, it's a little more the case recently. I don't know what it looks like to say, I'm just going to write all day, or I'm going to take a week to write, or I'm going to go on a residency, all things I would love to do and maybe will still do um, if I stay healthy enough, um, which, by the way, I'm healthy. I just got to stay healthy. But uh, so to your point, um, I decided early on I couldn't be precious. I didn't have any time to be precious, right? If 30 minutes seemed like the right number because at the time that was my rule with running, never run less than 30 minutes. What's the point of that? Um, and so 30 is arbitrary, but it's a good number. And so what I have found over now 25 years is that 30 minutes a day can get a lot done. You know, occasionally when I have the rare deadline or I'm feeling particularly frantic, to use that word again, I might do a series of 30-minute shifts, but I really treat them like slots or shifts. Uh, so did that cumulative writing make a difference? I would say absolutely. You know, the first... Um, nearly seven years I was writing, I didn't get anything published. Uh, I think that number is accurate. Maybe it's a little lower than that. I mean, that's um, you paying your dues, though. That's you learning. Absolutely. And I was always okay with that. I mean, there was an element, which maybe most of us have, though I don't need to project on anyone else, where I kept thinking, when is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And then I decided... It will happen. There's no other way to do this. But, um, yeah, I do think I've gotten better over time. You know, what also happens, which I have better language for this, is that you start to understand what you're trying to say and how you want to say it, right? And so then you have, because I don't really outline, though when I have outlined, it's actually been very helpful. Uh, It's just not an inclination. But I can start to see what I want to say and what those things are supposed to look like. And so one advantage I have, and if that's the right word, Mallory, please correct me, is that I always know exactly what I'm going to be working on when I sit down. I mean, 
365 days a year, I could tell you what I'll be doing when I go to bed the next day. Um, and I rarely, this is super obnoxious, but I never have writer's block. Um, it's very plotted out, but it's not plotted out like I know what the 30 minutes is supposed to look like. If I go in a new direction, you know, it's a bit more like improv. You know, I have a structure in my head. I know what project I'm working on. And then I just follow it. Um, and if I don't get a lot done in that 30 minutes, that's not the point. Like today, I'm working on something new. I got really caught up in what I realized was an error in what I worked on yesterday. And it took me like 15 minutes to correct that error. In, in essence, I had done some low-level research and had done it incorrectly and then written all about it. So I went back to fix that. Um, that's cool. I don't, I don't sweat, you know, not getting X amount of words done. I just need to sit down every day or try to. And so, yeah, I know this isn't exactly what your question was. Yeah, I absolutely feel like over time I've gotten better. And, you know, my earlier books, which I like, um, that's not to say other people don't, it's just sort of funny, like, you know, hopefully you get better anyway. Uh, some of those early books that just, you know, you're seeing me in public in real time learning how to write. Um, I hope I'm better. And if someone were to look at an earlier book and say, wow, these are not as mature, uh, I would agree. I wasn't as mature. And, you know, I've been lucky enough that there's always been people who've wanted to publish me. That sounds really obnoxious. So you're seeing the books happening out loud. And uh, I'm really comfortable with that. Some people are always like, oh, man, those earlier books are so embarrassing. I don't feel like that. I mean, no one may read them. And maybe nobody read them then either. But uh, that's cool with me. I mean, I'm sure I would correct every one of them. But... Uh, it's an evolution. I'm really comfortable with that. I appreciate that you're not afraid to mix it up with genre. Is that a conscious decision? Because, I mean, you're saying that you're playing around with making, like, a young adult book, and then, obviously, you jumped into this, which I, I'm not quite sure. What, what genre is The Missing? I don't know. You know, by the way, it's funny you say that. Uh, I tend to call it, like... Um, there's a word, there's a phrase I came up with, but it doesn't help. Uh, sort of like domestic something. I think I tend to write domestic books. How do people get along? How do they take care of themselves? Uh, what's funny, though, is what you're identifying has also, interestingly, been a drawback to these books being optioned, um, which I've had no success with, and don't lose a lot of sleep on, because that would be a, a nightmare for me. But uh, I have this short story collection, Upstate, and, uh, yeah, I read from that one. Yes, you did, and thank you. I love that project, and you were awesome, and I very much appreciate you participating. Um, but the reason that project emerged, by the way, this serialized podcast, is that a producer, someone I knew a long time ago, I've stayed low, you know, friends with over the years, uh, he was interested in potentially optioning the book and making a serialized podcast. And then he sort of brought in his strategy guy, his second-in-command, and the second-in-command was like, no way. I don't even know what this is. And then he said, what are you doing next? Like, we were, we're not going to be buying this. Like, just completely killed it. It was really funny. And he said, what are you doing next? And the missing was already done or close to being done. So I described it. And he's like, no. <laughs> he's like, dude, you do not write things anybody's going to want. It was really funny. And I thought, I go, people don't want domestic things. But I guess, you know, there's no, it's not a horror. It's not a thriller. It's not particularly romantic. It's a lot of people talking and trying to make better decisions. I mean, there's sex and there's 
other abuse, not sex and other abuse, there's sex and there's things that get abused, but uh, it was really funny. So when you said the genre thing, I thought, I don't know what it is. It's whatever is in my head. It's definitely some sort of domestic something, but um, also apparently not very appealing to people who buy things. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I have been seeing a lot of people talk about it lately, so clearly there are people who are very interested in it. I got some thriller vibes. It's very introspective, which is why I previously asked you how much you pulled from real life. God, I feel like we almost have to ask like AI what genre your book is. Yes, now that we're talking about it. it you know, it is funny, though. There is a thriller vibe in that there's a lot of dread. I think a key thing for a good thriller or a good action book is that people feel sort of dread, like what's coming on the next page. And I believe there's a level I understand about dread because I understand sort of the dread of like of the quotidian, right? <laughs> I don't know if I could write a great horror story or mystery, but I can write how hard it is to get through the day. And, you know, just to do a quick shout back or call back to your comment about how much it's real life. Um, I can tell you in a way it's very not real life. It's not just that it's not about my kid. Um, they're very, what the realest part of it are the fears I have and the fantasies I have and the way I communicate poorly, the things I damage. Um, but a lot of it isn't even remotely from real life, you know. Um, it's just feelings I have or, and I'm sure you can relate to this, it's things other people have said to me that I couldn't let go of. Right. Do you like make so one notes thing we learn, of that? Pardon? Do you make notes of that when you hear things like that? So that's a really great, that's a both and. So the answer is no, I don't. <laughs> I just hold them. Those are the kind of things I can hold in my head. However, once an idea is percolating or evolving around, it could be a short story, it could be an essay, it could be a whole novel. I don't start writing immediately um, I don't have any rules about what I'm about to say, but I will write down every association I have until I'm ready to start writing. So do I write something down? No. But at some point, if it pops in my head, I'll make sure to write it down. And it's usually pretty, like, uh, ugly looking, right? Like, I'll have a piece of paper that I wrote the first idea on, and then I just keep writing on that paper until it's all sort of organized or just covered in ideas, and then I'll pick my way through them. Um, but some things, which I'm sure you can relate to again, they just pop in your head along the way. You know, like I knew this is early in the book, so it gives nothing away. I knew that the female protagonist, the wife and the mother, it seemed important that her mother had run away mm -hmm. as well. Right. So that you create this dichotomy where like there's a trickle down. Yeah, so she's still trying to understand why her mother would run away, and now she's got to figure out why her daughter ran away. So that's not even remotely from real life. There are feelings that are mine, the feelings I might have stolen from other people. However, as I was writing it, I flashed back to a kid I was friends with in middle school and high school. My understanding was, was that his mother ran away. I don't even know if that's true, but I was always stuck on it that this guy's mother had run away. I knew he was being raised by his, he and his sister were being raised by his father. Um, I never asked him. We were f good friends. We weren't great friends. But there was this sense that when he was younger, she had just left. And uh, that was 40 years ago, you know. But I always was like, really, like, how does someone do that? And again, not even with judgment. Like, just literally, how does that work? Um, which, by the way, is another thing I know I get tangled up in in both real life 
and on paper as an author, which is how do things work? Like I'm so fascinated by the sort of mechanisms or mechanistic nature of anything, right? So someone decides to leave their family, like what's running through their head? Why is that? Why is that? Yeah, that's an example from this book. But I feel that way about everything. You know, I'm a huge reader of the news. Uh, I just read constantly. But one of the reasons I like to read the news is because I'm hoping someone will explain something that I don't understand, right? Like, why did someone make that particular decision? It seems dumb or it seems smart or it seems random. I want someone to say, well, this is what we know about it. Like, I love data. I love reading about data and statistics hoping that there's a story in those numbers as well, right? That they'll tell us something that I don't understand. I love trying to understand things. So that's part of the book too, right? Trying to understand the thinking. And of course, the parents in this book, what they can't understand is not is A, why their daughter would want to leave. Not that they think they're great parents, but also why is no one going to explain why it happened, right? Like why do these things happen, and that, I think, is really interesting. It's interesting to me. Oh, I'm hoping it'll be interesting to the readers. I think it is very, very interesting, for sure. Um, for me, when I actually try and understand why people act the way they do, and I, I actually have a very similar story where it's actually my father, who his father just walked out on him. And there is always this same vibe that I always can never understand, of like, why? Why would someone just do that? When it comes to me trying to understand other people's behaviors, though, I've always found that, like, Reddit has been a really good haven for those kind of conversations. Have you ever tried that? Or do you, do you, are you an Apple Plus scroller? Like, where are you getting your news? No, I am. Oh, sorry. I am an Apple Plus scroller, but this is going to definitely embarrass me. I still get the newspaper delivered. Oh, I think that's totally cool. I mean, I might judge you on what paper it is, but... <laughs> Please judge me. I love being judged. Um, yeah, no, I will sit down. I know you're a coffee person. On a normal morning, I now get up over the years extra early so I can sit down and read the newspaper cover to cover and drink coffee every morning. That is my morning vibe. I hate to mess with it. I mean, I mess with it all the time. But, uh, yeah, I really like to read the news. Um, on Sunday, I will read both the Tribune almost entirely and the New York Times entirely. Uh, but I also like to watch the news, not like the five o'clock news. Like I want to watch MSNBC and CNN and, you know, I'll dabble in Fox too, just so I can try to hear as many sides as possible. But, you know, again, it's all so interesting. And also people are so terrible, which isn't really how I feel day to day about the universe. But of course, we're surrounded by terrible people making terrible decisions. And I want to understand that. Like how, I mean, I want to understand why people make good decisions too, but uh, yeah, and I'm a huge consumer of news along with it. And yes, I will hit Apple. I, Reddit's fascinating if I followed the way you're thinking about it, because people are pretty naked with how they think about things, even like really horrific things. And so that of course is going to be endlessly fascinating. It's like a car crash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was re recently looking up, um, what the deal is with millennials and why aren't we actually being taken seriously as adults? And it was like the longest thread ever. And it, it was very analytical. And I was like, this is so fascinating to see like what everybody else is thinking, like what the root of the problem is or why other people are thinking this. But I want to give shout outs. I like your news paper vibe. I think it's badass times and the Tribune. That's what I grew up reading. I don't, get a physical paper. I mean, I grew up always wanting to do that because that's what I witnessed 
almost everyone in my family doing. They, like, drink coffee and, like, pull out the newspaper. I don't know if it's a small person thing or if it's just because I grew up with, like, iPads and, like, an iPhone, but I can't actually hold the whole newspaper. It's a very messy process for me. Oh, it's a hot mess. And by the way, I don't like, <laughs> this is funny because I travel a lot. I used to travel a lot for work. I still travel. I'm traveling again. But, you know, by engrossing yourself in the paper, you also get all the newsprint going. And when I'm on a long flight, that newsprint, I'm giving, I'm sharing one of my obsessions or whatever it is. You know, the idea of having like newsprint covered fingers will will drive me batty. Uh, at home, you can wash your hands. So until they let you wash your hands on the plane, that can be really problematic. But to your point about whether it's a small person thing or not, uh, certainly it's very problematic to try to read the paper in bed, which I almost never do because it's just too much. Yeah, I mean, I, I also like to try and do the thing where I'm sitting up and reading the newspaper, and it, it's just so huge. That's why so many <laughs> times I'm just like, why can't it all just be like Time magazine? True. I mean, True. I understand yeah, no, the history of how they're made, but I, I feel like, okay, it, it's nice that they finally figured out a more efficient way for it to be read. Well, let me say, by the way, not only is it more efficient, but I catch a lot of shit, even from my mother, who not only always read the papers when we were kids, but, you know, she is not a millennial or even a Gen Xer like myself. And she's like, seriously, can't you just read that on your phone? And I'm thinking, you could, or I can sit here and hold the paper, which is one of my great pleasures. That's the other thing. For me, it is a real pleasure thing. And um, Is it like the tangibility of it? There's definitely a tangibility thing. I have a real... I don't know what you call it, but I have a real touch thing. So, yes, there is a tactile, maybe that's it. There is a tactile, tactile feeling. I don't read, like, you know, I don't ever read Kindle books or, and I try to never read PDFs. Um, oh, I just And uh, I understand it's not, and it's not because I'm like a Luddite or I'm anti-technology. I just want something in my hands, you know, and I like to turn pages and I like the feeling of book covers. And even though I don't like newsprint on my fingers, I like the idea of your fingers on the newsprint. So, yeah, there is a very – and I've always been very tactile. So that – I did, I don't always think about it that way. Like when I was younger, I don't do this anymore or not as much. I could just go into a bookstore and just like touch books for hours, um, run my finger down the spine of the book. I mean – and it's funny to do a full callback. Uh, sometimes covers are satisfying enough. Just being able to hold the book is very exciting to me. So you can imagine how lucky we both are, you know, when you have your own book published. I was already obsessed with holding books. I That's why every time someone asks if I'm going to do a review or interview someone with a podcast, I'm just like, just send me the book. And I make up a lie usually as to why I can't do the PDF. Where I'm just yeah, like, so oh, my vision too. can't handle it. It gives me headaches or whatever. <sighs> Oh, and so many things, certainly if you do the kind of work I do, you can't avoid nonstop PDFs and PowerPoints. And so, yeah, the one thing I say to publicists and authors, those I know and don't know, is, you know, I don't have time to read everything. I wish I could. I will absolutely try to get to your thing or your author's thing. However, if you really want me to get to it, please find a way to send me a print arc that's going to up your up the likelihood significantly. I still drop the ball left and right, which I hate. Um, but yeah, no, I, I actually don't accept. Not that I'm so awesome or, you know, but I just want a book in my hand. And I'm not going to sit there on my computer or someone's iPad and read your book if I don't have to. Especially if I don't have like, to. I make, a, I make exceptions. Like, oh, yeah. And it's just not fun. Like, that's not a fun experience to me. Now, I will say... 
I was on a flight abroad, or maybe it was just cross country, but I was going to be on the road for several days for several stops, um, something work related. And I put like five books in my backpack. I always overpack books. I'm really good with clothes and I'm bad with books. And then this guy next to me, this is years ago, but he had this very this slender back backpack. I had my insane bursting at the seams backpack, you know, with like trail mix and a hundred books and whatever I was writing at the time. And he slid out an iPad um, or a Kindle. And I could see that he had the same amount of books I had, but lined up on his Kindle. I thought, wow, that is much more efficient than what you're doing, Ben, staring at these five books, a couple of which were like four or 500 pages. But then I thought I'd rather be him, but I am not him. I am me. And I'm just going to have to cart books around. So forget it. So this almost like leads me into a territory that like I've, I've done a few times and I haven't done it in a while where I ask authors um, overrated and underrated subjects and then ask them to explain why they view it as overrated or underrated. So the first one I will throw at you is audiobooks, overrated or underrated? I don't think they're overrated, but they're incredibly unappealing to me. Uh, And again, I want to be really careful because I have strong opinions on lots of things. They can come off as judgy. Maybe I just don't want to sound judgy. But if someone says to me, I read an audio book, I'm not sitting there thinking you read an audio book. So I think that's important because sometimes I react strongly to things and people think I'm judging them. Um, I don't really get the audio book thing. It sounds great. And I bet you I'd really enjoy it. Uh, But no, I think neither overrated or underrated, but almost zero interest to me. Now, as I always say, if somebody wants to do an audio book of one of my books and they sell a bunch, I'm as pro audio book as anybody. And I'm not... I'm pro anything for anybody that doesn't, like, uh, bum people out or oppress anyone, but that's not my jam. Now, I love listening to podcasts, though, so uh, not only is that blowing smoke for both you and I, but if I'm going to be in the car for several hours, I'm going to listen to you or Brad Listy or Mark Marin, right? Like, that's a, that's more enjoyable to me. Well, that leads into the next overrated, underrated podcast about writing. Oh, my gosh. I love them, but let me clarify And again, I'm projecting because here I do a podcast that are long form interviews. I'm not as interested in craft, uh, though those are interesting, too. I really am interested in interviews, just you, the royal you, also you, Mallory, or me, Ben, just talking to someone about how did you come to be right again to me again? How do things work? How are you who you are? Why are you writing that book? It's much more interesting to me about having someone talk about all the things that influence them and much less about how they go about their business. So if that comes up on one of my shows or on your show or anyone's show, I'm still interested. And it's not that I don't steal things. I love hearing about that. But give me a long-form interview anytime. And even if it's about writing, and yeah, I don't get that overrated at all. I think it's very exciting. Um, but, you know, it's funny. You're not asking this, but I'll just throw it out because I throw this out once in a while. You know, reading is one of the first things I was able to do, uh, meaning I don't know what I was good at or cared about, but I figured out how to read at a very young age. And as soon as I could read, that's all I did. Um, and so I have always loved writers and the idea of writers. And while, and I'm a very fanboy and a bit of a star fucker, so I've been informed. Um, but I would rather meet a writer than an athlete 
or an actress or a singer or a model any day. Those are cool, too. Um, but meeting writers will always be my jam. So it's kind of funny, you know, when you're talking about overrated, underrated. I want to hear what writers have to say because I was always obsessed with writers. And I was never quite sure if I'd ever get to meet any, which now seems ridiculous. But that was something I actually thought about. Yeah, I mean, that's what I always strive for with this podcast because I know I go all over the place. I prefer it to be a conversation with the writer and who mm-hmm. they are as opposed to, you know, like, yes, it's very fun parsing through the book and what's your method and what inspired this or that. But I don't know. I think it's so much more fun to reflect on, like, who you are. What led you into this? Like, you said yourself that, like, reading was one of the first things you were able to do. But then you mentioned that it took you a while to get published and everything. So, like, how did you? get into this community who let you in ben <laughs> assuming i'm in yeah that's a that's interesting too and i don't know enough about your background but if you don't it's interesting because i don't think i understood this that seems so obvious if you don't have an mfa if you didn't go that route um if you didn't go to writers workshops i'm trying to think of the ways people do that then you really don't have a community uh i moved to chicago for graduate school, but I got a social work degree, which is what has driven my professional life and a lot of the interesting things I've been able to do or allowed to do, and of course, pay bills for 30 years. So I just, I mean, there's the whole backstory about deciding to write, but when I started writing at 30, um, I didn't know a single writer. I didn't know where writers were. I didn't understand how you found them. I didn't understand anything about publishing or getting published. Uh, and so, and this is very conscious, not quite Courtney Love conscious to do my own callback, but I just started going to every reading I could. How did you so find when I wasn't Because I'm assuming this is like pre-hardcore internet, yes? It's borderline pre-internet, not even hardcore. It's borderline pre-internet. I mean, when I first started trying to get published... 90% of the stuff you had to submit, you still had to put in an envelope and then wait. And you had to put in a self-addressed stamped envelope where you might never hear back. So the internet was very, very new. You know, so my did first you have to, like, big job, coffee my shops first big job. And see, I, like, the posters and be like, oh, there's going to be a reading. You'd see those posters. You, If you lived in Chicago, you'd open New City or The Reader. Like, I would study those things. You know, back then, the Sunday Tribune, like in the arts and leisure section, whatever they call it here. Uh, there were to be listings. I mean, that's really gone the way, that's really gone south. But also, now I'm going to sound really old, by the way. You, I would walk into like a Barbara's on Wells, which doesn't exist anymore, um, or a store like that, and they would list who was coming, and I'd write those things down. (laughs) I'd put them in my paper calendar as a reminder. So I was trying to figure out where things were happening all the time, And then I would go, and I wrote an essay about this years ago, but those early years, I was like a vampire. I would go everywhere I could. I would talk to anyone I could. I would show up to the whatever was following the thing. Um, And you really, for years, I barely met anyone, but I figured out what the landscape looked like, and I also started figuring out where I wanted to get published, if I could, right? So... I've told this story before, but for example, I seized on Punk Planet, which was still a thing, um, and the greatest, one of the greatest things to come out of Chicago, I would say, during my lifetime. And, you know, it was a magazine that 
a guy named Dan Sinker had started in his dorm room, I think at Michigan State. I might be making that up, but he was based in Chicago. I learned about Punk Planet, and I thought, I'm going to have to figure out how to get into Punk Planet. Then I learned about another Chicago magazine, which was a which was and is an esteemed literary journal. And then there was a broadside called The Second Hand, which still exists also. And I just thought, figure out how to get into those things. And I just kept expanding, showing up at their events. Like Punk Planet would do like an open party somewhere, and I would just show up, and I'd try to figure out who the editors were. Uh, and I would pitch, and I would pitch. And when people gave me any room to like do an edit or circle back or they'd say maybe they didn't mean it you know send us something else I would send them something else so it was like years of writing every day showing up at events so no one let me in um which is funny I'm not saying it like that to push back on you meaning oh, no, I just yeah. kept, I did no but it's funny because I did keep showing up I think I will state this and I mean this like unequivocally uh it probably would have been very helpful to have gone to Columbia or the School of the Art Institute or the, you know, one of those writing programs because those people, and by the way, whenever I say those people to my older son, he's like, who people? What people? Who are you talking about, Gen Xer? But, you know, those people, those people who graduated from those programs, they were hosting things. They were taking care of each other. They were creating things. However, so, you know, I was definitely not and never felt like an insider However, I don't know what it's like in other cities. I, I found everybody very welcoming. Um, I also very consciously looked for people who weren't part of those networks but were still around. So, you know, I'm a bit of a collector, which I hope isn't as base as it sounds. Like if I meet someone and I like them and they like me, we will stay friends as long as that person wants to stay friends. Like I, I would never drop any friendship. Um, you really have to drop me, and that's cool also. But there were a lot of people who weren't part of those networks, right? They were trying to write, and I found them and befriended them and built sort of my own network. Um, and a lot of those people don't write anymore, which is weird, or don't live in Chicago, and that's upsetting on some level. But I sort of made my own thing. And then, you know, I think you know this too. Once you start getting published, then doors open up um, and people find you. And I just kept building it and building it. And I would say for the first 10 or 15 years, I just literally chased everything I could. And then I was allowed to slow down a little bit. But those early years, even with little kids, um, you know, just working out with my wife, can I go to this? Can I? Not that I need her permission, but you know, like, I mean, how can well, we make this work? balancing stuff, yeah. Constantly balancing, thinking about vacation time, thinking about lunch hours. You know, there used to be a thing, which now I'm totally forgetting about, I can't remember the name, but Columbia College hosted like a week-long set of writers' workshops and events. It was so cool. Um, and I was working in the loop. So I was right near Columbia College. I would sneak out of the office nonstop to go to their things. Like I would take lunch or I'd sprint out at the end of the day. Do you know how badass that had to be, though, for the students who might have like gone there too and then like to run into you? That probably was awesome. I don't know. That's a I, that would be great. I definitely have that much ego, but but it was very helpful for me. And then you meet people, and people are cool, right? Like, not all these people live in Chicago anymore. You meet someone like Elizabeth Crane, who was an abs who is an absolutely beautiful writer, and uh, we just hit it off. Um, and Jomino was always very kind to me. So you meet people who are already established, and they're not all cool. But the ones who are cool, you know, open doors for you. Also, what I will say, which is interesting because we're talking about time and generations, 
I was a very early lit blogger, um, even though I didn't know anybody. And uh, what did you'd be surprised like then? <laughs> well, so this is funny. And Dimitri's a great example, right? Because Dimitri would blog about, I mean, I think first he was doing it by hand, but he would blog about his taxi stories, right? That became a book. Um, a lot of people use blogs to sort of like a diary or a journal or a, a thing, and people were able to turn blog posts into books. Uh, I took the opposite approach right off the bat. Uh, my blog, I always w- framed it as a fake corporate blog that was all about promoting authors and artists I loved and myself. So I always saw it as a tool. And, you know, corporate blogs barely existed then also, but I could tell that there's certain things I could really tell were coming and I exploited the hell out of it. But so I would just write about things that were happening, not necessarily diary like, but here's an event I participated in. This is why it was cool. Here's an event that's coming. Uh, here's a podcast I love. And I will tell you what's interesting is in the early years of that blog, people really read blogs back then and they really tracked their names. And so you could blog about someone and you might get a call from them or a note. That would never happen now. Um, but back then, the blog was also um, it was a means for communicating. So there's a really there's a writer I love. I haven't seen him in ages. Scott McClanahan. I don't know if he's familiar to you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so he's a big deal dude, right? He's an awesome guy. So I wrote a blog post about, this is the kind of blog post I used to do. I was at an event, and two different people mentioned Scott to me. And he'd only had like one book out at the time. I mean, now he's a legend. He's an icon, and validly so. At the time, he was like a new guy, but people loved his work. So I wrote a blog post where I basically just said, who the fuck is Scott McClanahan? (laughs) Why is everybody talking about him? I've never heard of him. Like, I was being, like, tongue-in-cheek, but I was also being serious. Like, you know, we at this blog want to know who the hell this dude is. And I would say within 36 hours, I got a note from him, and he said, hey, man, I want to send you the book. See, that's fantastic. And so that was another way that I was able to build things out. So then I started my podcast, and then when he said that, then he said, I'm going to be in Chicago. Maybe we could meet. And then I said to him, why don't we do a podcast together? he's like, okay, whatever that is. So he sends me a book. He's in Chicago. We do a podcast. We become friendly. You know, he has other books come out. I keep blogging about him. I do book reviews on my blog, right? So I did this, I used to do this whole thing called This Book Will Change Your Life. And I would write long, free-flowing book reviews that nobody cared about except for the authors. Um, And I took it very seriously, like I took the podcast seriously. So that was a whole very conscious approach to thinking, will this open doors? And then it did, which remains shocking to me. So, okay, two questions come up. First, I was going to ask, because we definitely focused on the local community of writing and how you suddenly like started to get into it and blogging is a fantastic way so like people like Scott would like kind of pass through and that's how you got them when was it that you took the leap to going to other places to meet the writers because I know that was a very intimidating situation for me where it's like all right I'm gonna go to a festival now or I'm just gonna go meet this person in Portland because they're very cool right so, also interesting, at the time, I had a job where I traveled a lot around the United States. And one thing I'm not embarrassed about is getting rejected. Um, I have a million things I'm embarrassed about. So, 
the podcast was a door, but not the only door to open. I would travel and I would call people up that I didn't know or send them notes and say, hey, we sort of know each other on Twitter. And like, I was also an early adopter of Twitter and Facebook. Like anything that was new, I tried out, even though I wasn't as young as other people using them. Like I really believed, I think I'm correct about this, that these would become communication platforms. Like when I first went on Facebook, I can tell you I'm old enough that it was still primarily only college students, but I really thought authors were going to be able to use it. And several people I was friendly with at the time were like, dude, what are you doing? You're 30 years old. You're, I mean, think about that. Our parents have taken over Facebook, even my mom. But at the time, it seemed insane that you could be 30 and be on Facebook. But I really believed in the potential of it. And we could argue how horrible it is and an endless array of things and how dumb it is now. But you know, this is 20 years ago. And I really thought this is going to be a tool. People don't understand it yet. Um, and it's not that I got particularly sophisticated. I always want to be more sophisticated, but I understood it was going to open an insane amount of doors. So I would reach out to people like I would be in Atlanta for a gig and there'd be like a book reviewer there who I knew through Facebook. And I'd say, hey, can I buy you a drink? Um, and then when the podcast started taking off, whatever that means, I would call people up and say, we don't really know each other, but I do this podcast. So if I'm in your town, would you want to sit down? And then when my first book came out, that's when doors really opened. So then I started calling bookstores and saying, you don't know me. I'm an author from Chicago, but I'm going to be in town for an event. I'm free that night. Could we set up a book reading? And that was shockingly more successful than you would think. Uh, it didn't always get a lot of people out, but then you become friends with bookstore owners and hipster authors and people who do blogging. And so I was able to build this sort of larger network. Then I started going to AWP, right, the big literary conference, and I didn't know anybody. I mean, the first several years I went, I really literally didn't know anybody. In fact— Did they have the off-site events then? They were, yeah, that was always a thing. I mean, it's everything's so much bigger now. It's a little more like the Grateful Dead back then and people hanging in the parking lot. But um, that's cool. One thing that ha it was great. And, you know, I'm hungry for that stuff at any age. Uh, what, what happened, though, which is funny, and I wish I remembered the year. I mean, it's a long time ago. I wrote a short story that won a contest from uh, with a now defunct and obscure literary journal. But it won. And the journal called me, right? We didn't even have email yet. They called me and they said, hey, you're the winner. Um, it was a great magazine. I believe it was Cake Train. It was out of Pittsburgh, maybe. Anyway, they said, you're the winner. Uh, you want some money. Um, but also, we're going to be doing an event in AWP in Austin, Texas. This has got to be a long time ago. It could be almost 20 years ago. And they said, you know, we'd love to feature you with our other readers. And I had never even heard of AWP. I didn't know what it was. And I said, oh, cool. And they said, you're going to be there, right? And I was like, yeah, of course. And I got off the phone and I said to my wife, something's going on in Austin, Texas in four weeks. And then she said, so you're going to go, right? And I was like, am I? Like, I it was so bewildering. Um, and then I went for one afternoon and one night. And uh, I went to this reading and I met all these people who I didn't know. And then I went to the book fair and met all these people I didn't know. Um, and I didn't go again for years. But then I had that first book come out, or maybe the second one, and someone said, you're going to come read at AWP, right? And then I went for years. So I do want to say people love to complain about AWP, which is cool. I love complaining. Oh, uh, man, I love other people complaining. I don't complain. I love other people complaining. I find it very entertaining. But for me, 
AWP for maybe six or seven years I went in the earlier part of the century, it was a gift. I mean, I treated it like a business trip. And I would go and I would meet people. And I started getting published. So I had books to hand out. Um, It was a boon. I don't know if that's the right word. But uh, that to answer your question, though, as soon as I was leaving Chicago, I always saw it as an opportunity to either meet someone, interview someone, trade books with someone, or at AWP, just run around nonstop for two or three days and meet everybody possible. So that really opened the world up to me. And then, you know, anywhere, anytime I could set up a book reading, I'd set one up. And uh, now it all seems like a long time ago. And now I'm like actually sort of a little off the beaten path, but I did all that work, which allows me to hop back on the beaten path more quickly, which is wonderful. Did you go to AWP this year? I did because I have this book coming out and my publisher was going to be there. And I thought, dude, if you don't go this year. Um, so I did go, I was there for like 72 hours. I had a blast. Um, though, you know, it's all much slower than it used to be. I'm not as desperate and sweaty, which is fantastic. (laughs) I was able to go and I sort of treated like my normal day, get up, write, go for a run, walk over to AWP, do a reading. It's pretty nice. Very nice. See, that's that's the best kind of reading there is. For me, if I were to go to AWP, I haven't gone to one yet. It's because everyone immediately associates me with Malden House, and it costs like an arm and a leg to like have a table there and sell, and it, it takes forever for it to break even. So it's almost like a hobby situation where you have to go in knowing you're going to be losing a lot of money, whereas if you're yes. just a writer, it's just like, oh, this is just a fun, cool trip. You know, oh, just like being a free agent, you know, and uh, but again, I really treat it like a business trip. I met with a, a former client who's now going to we're going to work together again on his book. And I met with a new potential client. So what's funny is I used to always call it a business trip. But now it actually is also a business trip. Like I set up a bunch of work, which is good because it's work I'm interested in and it's money I'll appreciate in a couple of months. So it was funny. I, you know, I did like a, a lunch with someone and I did all those things. And so, um, I'm really humble. You know, it's funny. You made a question. you made a comment earlier about being humble. I mean, the one thing I'm very humbled by for sure, validly is that people see also that I have skills or connections or strategic insights primarily that serve them. So now I go to AWP and people are like, Hey, can we do lunch and talk about business? So it used to, I sort of manifested it without trying and that's a cool part of it too. See, that could definitely be an issue on my part because I do the humble thing because I, I'm actually also a very nervous human being and it gets so awkward when they reach out to me and then we have a lunch and we're both being introverted as hell. Yeah, no, it's helped. I mean, certainly, I think my DNA, whatever else, I am not introverted. On the other hand, which I say with love, I don't have the pressure you have. I mean, you run a very cool publishing house that publishes great books. So you have a kind of demand that I never have to deal with. No one's reached. I mean, people reach out to me about my podcast, reach out to me about maybe you could review my book or interview my client. I mean, I don't see that as a pressure, but it's a demand. You are, I would assume, primarily could be under demand all the time. I'm not. I'm not. Just my time and my brain, which is a lot different than, hey, maybe you'd publish my book someday. I never have to have that conversation. That's a lot of pressure. Oh, and it is the worst because, like, I'm going to send it to you. And it's like, oh, shit. I'm going to have to, like, come up with an excuse as to why I can't do it, even though you're an amazing human being. Well, I'm sure you get the comment of, you know, I sent you a book like a year ago. Oh, all the time. I get the queries (laughs) and everything, and that's why I just put on the forum now like 
I'll get back to you. Don't, don't ask me. But, you know, I do see some people cheat the system, and I would be lying in saying that because I cheat the system, too, going directly to the source where, like, they'll DM me instead of going through, like, the official channel. And then it almost makes it harder for you to be like, no. Oh, my God. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. Yeah. Even one time I volunteered. It was actually for a stretch of time. I was volunteering with a, a publisher that will go nameless because they have a lot of bad choo-choo now. But, um, you know, I think I know. What I was trying to help them about. clean up, <laughs> but I was trying to help them clean up, you know, because there are things I get obsessive about. And, you know, their submission stuff wasn't super organized. And I was like, well, why don't you let me help you organize that and do some of the reading and follow up with people and, you know, there weren't even like dates on everything. And again, I have my own blind spots, but I wrote to one author and I said, Hey, want to make sure, you know, the publisher received this. They're not interested. I just, you know, I want to make sure people are communicating one of my obsessions. And this person wrote back the nastiest email and they're like, F you and F them. I submitted this three years ago. There hasn't been a word. And now you're calling to tell me they're not interested. I already assumed that. But I didn't even know when it had come in. I just thought it seemed so jerky to have it sitting there, which is not even intended as a comment on the publisher, just to say, you know, there's so much disappointment built into the whole thing. And, you know, you're you're forced to be, I assume, I believe, you must be forced to be in the middle of that all the time, and that blows. I am the bearer of bad news a lot, but I'm pretty good at um, putting myself, like, in the wrong as opposed to, like, making other people feel like their literature isn't amazing. I, I, I always am just, like, I got really overwhelmed or I can't take on this much work, which is actually a pretty factual thing. I mean, I'm sure you get that way with... You interview a lot of people on your podcast. I mean... Yes. You have to be saying no a lot, right? You know, I say no a lot. I also have to follow up with people and say, I'm really sorry. I hoped I would get to your book. And there's just too many books because you know, part of the challenge is I don't want my time dominated by the podcast. I want to enjoy it and do a good job. And also I want to read whatever the most recent book is. And so sometimes I just can't get to the book and I, I hate that. And I'll say to people, and I say this a lot, please feel free to, and I'll tell people no all the time, certainly publicists that I'm friendly with. I'll say, this is just too many books. I can't handle it. But I'll also say to people, feel free to send it because you seem awesome and I don't know if I'm going to get to it. So I try to build that into the process, but I know I'm disappointing people, which I hate. <laughs> do you try and do it where like you're already like aware of who the author is? So you have like that mini like bias or are you going off of mainly like what is the book about? Both. So, you know, again, I read a lot just in general and I'm on, line a lot so I tend to have an association with a lot of authors just to begin with um and I've read a ton of books so uh I would imagine I have I have a decent amount of familiarity with the kind of authors who would come to me um I don't always know though for sure and then I'll do a little homework or I'll say tell me more about the book if it's a especially if it's a publicist um or some like middle person who knows me well enough to pitch one of their friends uh I'm rarely totally surprised, but a couple of times a year I am, and that's fun. And occasionally it's so surprising, I get very excited. And occasionally 
it's surprising, but I just can't do it. Like, I just can't do it. And I feel, again, I hate turning down anyone for any reason. You know, to me, especially with my podcast, I want it to not just feel like egalitarian or whatever the right word is, but there's no one, this sounds like I'm being really cheesy, but I'm glad I haven't used the word cheesy yet. <laughs> no one's too big or too small for my podcast. You know what I mean? Like, if you've published a book, however it's been published, I'm excited for you. Like, that's legit. And that's a thing that hasn't really come up as we've been talking so far. But, you know, I get very excited about things and I'm very interested in things. And, you know, I want to, as we've already said, I want to know how things work. So I, I'm curious how you got to this point. Um, I will also pursue people on occasion. Like, I don't know how much you do that. Like, if oh, I get I excited about someone or their book fell in my lap for whatever reason, I may reach out to them and say, we don't know each other, but, you know, your book fell in my lap and I got really excited. And, you know, um, people are cool. People don't always want to be on the show or they just don't always respond. And that's really interesting. And that's cool, too. Uh you know, it is fun, though, to get a pitch about someone I don't really know, and the book just gets me really excited. And that happens, as I said, a couple times a year. But it, they come in in all sorts of ways, um, you know. Or I'll be asked to do something like facilitate a panel, and then I'll get very excited about one of the panelists. And I'll say, what do you think? Would you, you know, I read your book for the panel. Would you want to be on the podcast? And so, you know, I'll pursue people. People pursue me. Publicists are constantly writing me which was a goal. Like I find it kind of exciting. I'm just sorry. I can't do all that work. I mean, okay. I don't know how this eventually happened to me, but it did where I just penguin random house keeps sending me books. I mean, they just put my address obviously under something. So like, I'm not even getting heads up anymore. Like I just got sent a book today. Do you get that? I do though. Not penguin random house. Um, yeah, it's funny. I do. And that was a goal. Mine are more tend to be sort of like some of the hipster indie or higher level indie presses. Um, did you interview anyone from Penguin Random House? Yeah, for the show? I, I've interviewed two and I'm about to interview another one next week. Yeah, that, that's how that works. As soon as they decide like you passed muster in some way and now you're just one of their people. Yeah, that was a goal of mine for sure. I had a friend who was an early another early lit blogger and he told me. Similarly, that this one publisher started just sending him books because he wrote about them on his blog. And I thought, and now I have a goal, have people want to send me books because of what I'm saying. And uh, yeah, that's really fun. What's also I've noticed, and I've been doing this forever, is that people will be really excited and, you know, then they'll sort of back off and then they'll come back, <laughs> you know, like they'll somehow circle back to me. And I think that's fascinating. I had a very interesting experience like a year or so ago. I heard an author on another podcast, Other People, which I love. And the author, I didn't really know him. I had read one of his earlier self-published books and really enjoyed it. But this was like his first bigger release. And he was talking about the book. And I got so excited about the book, listening to him talk about it, that I decided I was just going to go buy it and then call him, you know, send him a note and say, you know, kind of fell in love with your interview. Maybe you'd be on my show, too. And then the next morning, his publicist wrote me. Uh, and said, and basically wrote, I have no idea who you are, but my writer would really like to be on your podcast. And it was the dude I wanted to interview. I like it. It was really funny. The publicist wasn't even pretending. 
And so I said, do you want to send me a book? And she said, I will put it in the mail today. And I said, then tell him he's definitely on the show because I am dying to read this book. And like, then I got really excited and they were clearly not excited. They were just doing their job. But, you know, now I'm friendly with the person and the book was as good as it felt like it was going to be. And that was such a pleasure. Yeah, I would say that that definitely is my favorite part about podcasting. Now I'm immediately going to ask, how has podcasting changed your writing you know, I don't think it's changed my writing. I do think it has impacted me at times, especially other people's podcasts, hearing authors talking. It has affected me sometimes like strategically, which is m- much less cool, uh, meaning the way they talk about how they've gone about something like talking to an agent or, or what have you. I'll have that in my head. I'm not sure always what affects my writing. I can tell you what has affected my writing, which sounds really, I don't know if it's self-serving is the phrase. Like, there are times I've read reviews of my work, positive and negative, and I thought, oh, they picked up on something I need to pay attention to. So it's kind of funny. The biggest influence on my work has been how other people write about it. Um, It's funny, you know, my first book, which always sounds obnoxious, unless you're talking to a fellow author, uh, it was almost like a download. Like I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and I just wrote it and I think it's, it's very sparse, which is a style I'm drawn to. It's a little punk, which again, kind of drawn to is very fast, felt fast, I think. Um, and I wrote my second book and it wasn't any of those things. And I showed it to someone and they really didn't like it and they couldn't really say why they didn't like it. And they had loved my first book. And again, this is 20 years ago, but I couldn't really figure out what they were saying because the first book I had just written basically straight from the first word to the last word over like 30 days, just knocked it out, the entire book. And I never thought about style or approach. Um, and so then this, I showed it to this person who was a fan of mine, not even a friend, like a fan and a book reviewer and had reviewed the first book wonderfully and then just didn't like the second book. Like I asked for their thoughts uh, and I didn't really understand what they were saying. And I don't think I'm that usually that dumb, but they were just disappointed is probably the word. And then I read a review of the first book by someone else. And the way they talked about the book made me realize all the things I hadn't done with the second book. And then I went back and I revisited the second book with this review in mind. Um, and then I've written like that ever since. So always like peeling out as many words as possible, lots of white space in my head, lots of dialogue that's fast and violent. Um, and I don't remember exactly what this person said. So that does not answer your question, but it is a variation on that. Oh, no, meaning it definitely does. That's helped me more than the, the podcasting has. So are you work? I think you did mention that you're working on something, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I've used that word like 500 times. Maybe I'll edit some of those out. But I guess this is one of my problems. Everything is interesting to me, even myself, apparently. Um the Missing, which, again, I'm thrilled is coming out uh, for different reasons, was gestating for several years um, and is now coming out. So along the way, and this is after a long hiatus, so I've been writing every day for 25 years, but I'm, I'm on like a seven-year stretch where nothing's come out, um, which is not seeking any sort of sympathy at all, just where I've been at. However, another opportunity came up. I was invited to pitch a book. Uh, which I did uh, a while ago, a couple years ago, a year ago. And so I already have finished the second book, and it's with the editor now. 
So I have a contract and everything. So I'm going from like zero to potentially a couple of books coming out, you know, in the near future. And so the second book is done. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it. And then I'm actually on, this sounds terrible. I'm on to the thing after that because I need to write. So uh, I finished that other book as I was submitting the final edits for The Missing and I'm waiting for feedback on that. So, yeah, I do have another thing. I can tell you it's nonfiction. Again, it's not clear if I'm allowed to talk about it because I haven't announced anything. Not that I'm important. That's not the issue. But Oh, you don't want to, like, step on other people's toes. Right, no, I don't that. want to step on any toes. But it's nonfiction, and I'm really excited about it. And I will say very not humbly or self-deprecatingly, which I know is not a word, it's either like a complete trash fire or it's complete genius. I don't know which one it is. I don't think it's going to land in the middle. I have never said that about another writing project. But, man, I had this whole idea about what I wanted to do, and I feel like I did it and sent it in. Now, of course, I haven't gotten any feedback yet, so I don't know if it worked or not. But um, it is done. I'm waiting for notes. Oh, okay, so one, when you are saying you didn't know if it was a word or not, we're writers. We make up words, and they fit, so... Oh, yeah, I'm comfortable with that, but I get called out all the time, like, yo. But, of course, I also do a lot of facilitation of workshops, so people love to correct you with your poor English and grammar. Not a poor pronunciation, sorry, I, that's a more accurate word. I hate when people do that because I'm just like, all right, then this wasn't for you. Go away. <laughs> and I just say, look, I have a public school education from upstate New York in the 1970s and 80s. Um, my lack of skill, pronunciation, grammar, I believe, is built into that. Do you think sometimes that, because um, I sometimes have this belief that early on people realize that like I was a very advanced reader. Do you think sometimes when you're learning like a lot of literature and everything in school that maybe they skipped over those points with you? I wonder about that because I have some incredible deficits, grammar being one of them. So I'm not sure, you know, there is a weird catch and luckily or unluckily, by middle school, I wasn't special at all, so nobody was skipping anything. But elementary school, that's a very interesting question. You know, I don't know if this still exists. It seems very culty now. When I was in fifth grade, I was in the GATE program, which was the Gifted and Talented Enrichment program. And they pulled us from class. I don't know what we did in this program, but I was identified as gifted at one point. That quickly passed. And again, by seventh grade, nobody was calling me gifted. Um, so who knows what I missed? Like, that was a whole year where I think I missed a lot of time in class. Also, um, in ninth grade, which is much older, though, of course, much younger than I am now, I missed almost the entire school year because I broke my leg and they kept me in the hospital for three months. Whoa. Okay, that's a big yeah. shocker. They don't keep you in the hospital that long these days. No, so I was in I was in traction. Um, and they sent a tutor who didn't bring any work with him. So I didn't do any schoolwork for half of ninth grade. And I'm telling you, I never caught up. I never came close to catching up. See, that, that is actually a, a slight dream of mine. <laughs> Even now, <laughs> like, it's like, break my leg. I, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> but You know, the primary downside of that broken leg was one. Uh, what did you do I to that was, leg, by the way? I, uh was skiing in sub-zero weather and I was not a good skier and I went onto a closed trail and I made a turn or whatever you call it because again I was not a great skier my ski popped off and I hit a tree at least you didn't have the Sonny Bono thing happen so yeah no snapped my femur and uh they put me in traction so yeah I missed a bunch of the year 
Um, the only true, the truest downside was that I was under the impression that when I got out of traction, I would just be able to walk like it was no big deal. And that is apparently not how the body works. So that was a bit of a nightmare. Traction wasn't so terrible. Trying to learn how to walk again, also all the blood rushing to my feet, that was bad. See, yet again, I I feel like I'm willing to have that. Like, I've had quite a few sinus surgeries uh, throughout the podcast, like, over the last couple years. I loved it. I just messaged people, and I was like... I sound terrible right now. Um, I can't do anything. So just, just, I can't, yeah. Well, and to be clear, traction per se was not terrible. I read a lot. I did a ton of chin-ups, which was really fun. Um, I watched a lot of soap operas. There was a, a, you know, a cleaning lady in the hospital, and she would sync up my room with Days of Our Lives. So we watched Days of Our Lives every day for three months. She was awesome. Uh, and my mom worked a lot when we were kids, but she would come to the hospital after work. We watched, um, oh my gosh, there's a really famous miniseries when I was in the hospital with Richard Chamberlain. What was it called? Anyway, the Thornbirds. So we watched I've the Thornbirds together. They mentioned that in How to Get Away with Murder a lot. Oh, the Thorn, Thorn, the Thornbirds was the greatest thing ever because Richard Chamberlain played a priest and he got involved romantically with this young woman, what was her name? Rachel Ward, maybe? She was stunning. Anyway, the Thornbirds was a blast. Uh, we watched Hill Street Blues. I mean, my hospital experience was not very negative. Um, everything after that. So, yeah, you would probably have enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I, I definitely, as I said, come here, break my leg. I'm fine. Well, I'm not going to do that. But if someone else wants to volunteer, you've got my support. But, yeah, um, when you're mentioning the gifted programs, I don't know if it's... Um, based on states, regions, or even just, like, generations. But I was in a similar one. We called it Magnet. Mm. So I also had it where they'd pull us from classes and exact same thing. Like, I have no idea what the other students are being taught from, like, third to fifth grade. And I have no idea what we did in the gifted program. I remember, like, beanbag... And this is the 70s, by the way, so I'm dating myself. So there were, like, a lot of beanbag chairs and things, but... I don't know what was going on. I really don't. You could have told me that they were driving us to another town, as far as I know. I don't remember anything about it, just that I was out of class a lot. I remember, like, at times I would just be sitting, like, on the floor, like, outside my classroom with a couple other magnet students, and we weren't doing really any work at all. One time someone brought in a Celine Dion CD, and we just did that the whole time. Like, wow, it just... I don't know. I, I don't think they quite know, one, how to handle the, like, gifted children. And obviously, they clearly fucked up because they didn't teach us the basics. Yeah, no. I, and, you know, basics is always what I'm lacking. You know, the things I'm not good at or deficit in, it's because the basics are completely unavailable to me. Um, and so, yeah, whatever I missed did not serve me. And you know, I don't even know what the gauge was for being gifted. Maybe it was enough that I just read like crazy, but that seems hard to believe, doesn't it? You know, you would think it's hard to believe, but for most people I speak to, it really is one of those, you could read really long books. You have an advanced reading level. We're just going to skip you a little bit. Hmm. And I always found that like crazy to hear, but it seems like that was the case with me as well. 
Well, then I'm fascinated, and I'm both fascinated and deficit. I definitely made up for it in college, but it took me all the way to college to figure things out and to skip the things I wasn't good at. That was the greatest gift. See, I'm still pretty terrible with grammar. I had someone who was reading my new book, and they they threw it down on my editor the most, and I, I am so sorry to the editor because I was just like, yeah, it was their fault. <laughs> With all the grammar yeah, issues. My grammar skills are very poor, and my younger son has stunning grammar skills. And on occasion, I'll help him edit something because I'm a good editor, despite my grammar skills. And he'll say, why aren't you better at this? You're a published author. And I'll say, dude, they pay people to do the grammar part for me. Um, exactly. And that's wonderful. And I have you. But, yeah, no, I'm very poor with grammar, very poor at geography, and I have been everywhere but I never know what states are next to each other. You want wild. Um, I won a geography bee when I was in, like, fifth grade, and you asked me what's next to each other or even where certain countries are. I etch a sketch that out of my brain. I, I don't know. Yeah, both my kids have stunning, ma- I don't know what you call it, ma- sense of maps. And they're like, well, duh, that's next to that. And I always think, really? And I've been there, and I don't remember that. Yeah, no, I don't. I'm missing a lot of those things. Um, on the other hand, in fifth grade, there were two fifth grade classes, and there was a reading competition in whichever class read the most books in one month would win a pizza party. And this is a true story. Did everybody I don't think anyone's ever come up on the podcast. Pardon? Did everybody count on you? Well, no, no. And I wasn't like, no, I mean, because I, I wasn't popular or engaged at all up till, at that point. But this is true. I read so many books that the librarian said she didn't believe me. And I read so many books in the 30-day window that my class completely annihilated the other class. And the librarian, like, I, I mean, she said it to me directly, but clearly it made it back to the teachers because she said that I was not telling the truth. And then they decided to hold a pizza party for both classes because they didn't believe me. Ooh. Well, I guess that's what's funny is good. they could have just asked me to describe every book and that would have been fine, but they didn't. I mean, so uh, they ended up getting the pizza class, but um, they would actually make you take a little test on the book after you finish reading it to prove. Well, I wish they had done that because yeah. I do have very high reading comprehension um, and I did read all those books, but I had actually read like 100 books in the 30 days. I miss and, those days uh, so much. It was called. Oh, I know. And I was in school during the day. Like, I'm not even sure how I read that, but. I was always reading. I read at the dinner table. I mean, I read everywhere. If I was traveling with my parents and they, like, dragged us to a museum, I would just sit down somewhere in the middle of the museum and read till they were done. So, you know, I was a machine back then. You're such a Rory Gilmore. Don't know if you get that reference, but yeah. I do. I, I take that as a compliment, though. My understanding, I didn't watch a show, but my she understanding is books. people have really turned on her. Yeah. Yeah, my older son is like, oh, dude, nobody likes her anymore. Oh, I, I, I will definitely do the, you know, she turned into a very elitist bitch towards the end. But what are you going to do? That, that's how the story was going to always end, I think. And look at her look at her grandparents. But again, I never saw the show, so I'm basing it on people watching in my house and me walking around. But I will read about things I don't watch. So I know a lot about the show because I loved reading about it. 
I mean, it was a classic at the time. I only started watching it a couple years ago. I like how I said starting because I've watched the entire series now a few times. And it's only because my husband introduced it to me. He's the one who introduced me more to daytime TV and chick flicks. I never really... I didn't grow up watching TV. I grew up reading books like you, like where I'd be hiding. During holidays, I would go like up to my room and I'd be reading either something way too advanced for me or Harry Potter, you know, depending on my mood. So I, mean, I was always reading advanced things. My um, whole I family add, thought that I just didn't like them. I was like, <laughs> no, I just like reading better. My grandmother used to say, you're letting him read at the table, like right in front of me. My mom would just roll her eyes. Uh, I should add, though, this seems important that I did read an Unblue Mom, but I, in fact, watched a lot of TV. And now I still, even with all the other things we've discussed, read a lot of books and still watch a lot of TV. I just don't sleep a lot. So, yeah, I'm a total TV junkie, and it's, I would be more embarrassed about it, but A, I'm not young anymore, and B, so much of it's so good. I'm like Rory Gilmore. That character the actress played on Handmaid's Tale, is, and she was great on that. Oh, Alexis Bledel, she is like, she grew as an actress amazingly. Yes. She had a great arc on Mad Men also. That's actually how she met her husband. Yes, are they still together? Maybe. I wish I was more up on my celebrity gossip, but... I know. I'm a little... I'm less than I used to be, but I'm a little too much into celebrity gossip, and I have a feeling he walked out on her. That that would definitely, like, fit his character in the show. Right? And possibly the real guy, who I don't know that well, but he always plays characters who are a little sketch. I mean, as I said, he he is a sketch guy. He definitely fits that bill. I'm, like, looking it up, like, as we speak... Please, I'm dying to know. Okay, Alexis Bedell, are you with him still? Oh, yeah, they they divorced 2022. Yeah, so it's funny. Somebody had it in my head that he walked out. He's very odd also, I believe. He's very minimalist. I, I think I read that somewhere. So he's really not into possessions, which if you're married to... I don't know anything about her, but if she was remotely into possessions, then things would have been really difficult. Yeah, I'm reading, like, I'm I'm not reading an article while doing it, but it says that his excuse was he was a lone wolf and didn't want to be in a relationship anymore. You know, anybody who describes himself as a lone wolf has bigger problems than not being able to stay in a relationship. Yeah, you know what? She, she did all right. It's good that that marriage ended. And she's a member of the Traveling Pants crew, so she's covered. Oh, oh my God, there was another movie recently that I just saw her in, like something that came out in the early 2000s, but I think that was definitely her time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was that was some peak Blydell, though. Got a couple of Emmys for The Handmaid's Tale. That's a lot more recent. I keep wondering, is that series still going? You know, I stopped watching it, so I'm not sure. Uh, and I don't even have any good reason why I stopped watching, except I guess it felt less interesting. Uh, I don't know if they have any closure on that. Yeah, I mean, I read the new book, and I was like, this could take an interesting twist, but I, I am curious whether they're just going to try and like turn it around to fit that twist, or if they're just going to keep continuously torturing our characters and never let them have a happy ending. They certainly deserve one at this point. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to ask you one more fun question because 
I was asked this at my last reading, and I think it was really fun because uh, I actually asked Brian Allen Carr on this episode a while back, can you pitch me the missing without giving me any of the plot? Ooh, that's awesome. The missing without any plot. Okay. Um, how do we fail to communicate with and support those we love in ways that may or may not damage both our relationship and ourselves. See, you, you came up with that quickly. You were ready. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's the kind of thing where I think people pay me to do that kind of thing. So, uh, yes, I wasn't ready, but I was ready. But that's, you know, that's years of being in meetings and someone saying, we need to sum this up in two sentences. Who's got it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's pretty lit. I won't keep you any longer. So thank you very much for being on the podcast. And God, I love learning all about your broken leg stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> did you say broken? I hope you did. That's that's fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I mean, I'm a fan regardless, but this is a really nice bonus. And of course, supporting the book and all that stuff is, um, you know, it's endlessly appreciated. I mean, that's the new way that we have the literary community, thanks to social media. Well, social media is dying. We'll figure out how to do it in the real world again. Right. There'll be, we'll be, the pendulum will be swinging back. Until it does, though, this is awesome, and you do a really great job of it, so uh, that's appreciated, too. Okay, that was Ben Tanzer. You can get a copy of his book, The Missing, from 713 Books, and check out any of his other work on his website, tanzerben.com. His podcast, This Podcast Will Change Your Life, is a must-listen. It will truly change your life. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the proper spellings and links. As always, please check out our Twitter, at PodHealing, and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. Show us support by going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review or subscribing to us on Spotify. And of course, don't forget to check out the Patreon. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for listening to the show. Thank you.